0: This week on the Encouragers United podcast, I got the chance to sit down with Bob Dean, a passionate coach, administrator, and family man whose career has taken him to a varied array of experiences with private and public education where he simply couldn't help himself but to get involved and make a difference.
1: Walking into the principal's office and literally just sitting down and saying, I, I don't even need 15 minutes. Where do I sign up to make it make a difference? How, yeah. how do I do that?
0: Bob Dean is currently the Pioneer Development Officer for Malone University in Canton, Ohio. He specializes in the fundraising efforts for the Pioneer Athletic Department, which competes at the NCAA Division II level. From 2015 to 18, he served as the director of athletics and activities for the Crestwood local schools. He spent the previous 11 years as the head women's soccer coach and student athlete affairs administrator for Hiram College. And prior to Hiram, Bob was the first full-time alcohol and drug abuse prevention professional employed in a public school in Ohio. And he spent 17 years as the student assistance administrator and head women's soccer coach for the Hudson City Schools. Bob has trained and spoken in over 700 different school districts around the nation. As a coach, he was recognized by his peers as the Ohio High School Division I Women's Coach of the Year in 1996 and 1998, and was privileged to lead his teams to the Ohio Division I state championship in the year 2000. He currently serves as an associate board member for the Cleveland chapter of the Positive Coaching Alliance. Bob is a graduate of Kent State University, holds two national coaching certifications from the U.S. Soccer Coaches Federation, as well as the Royal Dutch Football Federation. And he and his wife Sally, their daughter Abby, and son Ryan live in Kent, Ohio. I'm here with Bob Dean, and I'm sitting in an office, uh, a modest office here in Canton, Ohio at Malone University in the Office of Advancement. Bob, great to have you on the show. Why don't you just introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: No, Charlie, thanks. This is uh, overwhelming to me and uh, I just appreciate your friendship and and uh, the opportunity to be here uh, to uh, to share and to talk and and, uh, and just answer your questions. Um, so uh, just a little bit about me. Uh, I have a really odd story and path that got me to Malone University and kind of where it all started. So I'll kind of go backwards um, in that a couple of years ago, uh, before I was at Malone, I spent three years as the director of athletics for the Crestwood School's small uh school district up in portage county that i was familiar with because of my previous position that was there but uh, loved uh, the role as an athletic director um, loved the people there still do love the community um and and loved serving them uh, great athletic tradition great coaches had the opportunity to coach coaches really formally for the first time and uh, i i just truly enjoyed every minute of it uh god have a, had a different plan um, in that uh, the school district went into a next level of a financial crisis, and I was uh, kind of put in a situation where we had to downsize our athletic department. Um, I had lost uh, a couple of coaches, had to let some coaches go and some positions go, and um, and then unbeknownst to me, a, a former supervisor who, at uh, one of my previous positions, gave me an invitation to to go into this role here at Malone as a development officer. It was kind of an offer that I couldn't refuse because it was uh, the, off, the opportunity to uh, to put our, our family back into a, a different type of stability that we hadn't had before and um, gave me a new challenge. Uh, but the biggest thing was it put me into a, into a Christ-centered atmosphere. I'd never worked in that atmosphere before. So it was a huge, huge deal. For 11 years, previous to the three that I spent at Crestwood, I was the head women's soccer coach and student-athlete affairs administrator for Hiram College um, and uh, had uh, just a wonderful time there. Um, The Crestwood was familiar because it sits in the same community that Hiram College is in, so there were a lot of connections that were there. My sister-in-law was... An administrator in the Crestwood schools, I knew the athletic administrator there, and knew multiple people in the community as well. But uh, but my time at uh, at Hiram was uh, just foundational. Um, I I I I love the game of soccer. I love coaching and, and the the hands on and the on the turf and everything that goes along with that and the instruction. But I really fell in love with recruiting uh, and the relationship building part of it and. Um, which is unusual because I was on the other side of recruiting for 30 some odd years as a club coach and high school coach prior to that um so uh uh, but it it was a heck of a grind and and when I walked away I walked into a really good situation as an athletic administrator um but we uh, we built something from nothing um at Hiram in those 11 years it was a it was a program that had no legitimacy whatsoever athletically and uh, and we built it into a, a, a beyond legitimate to competitive to a, a really threatening program had winning seasons and uh and it was a good good situation um loved the relationship with the young women that I got to work with with coaching staff and got to do some neat things uh, like uh, be responsible for a student athlete advisory council got to go through the NCAA's leadership training academy yep. was certified as a as a disc trainer um, the the greatest experience that I had was the collaborative event uh, opportunity to work um, with the NCA's division three Branch that was looking at creating a model for substance abuse prevention programs Mm -hmm. on campus that could be accessed for free. Long story short, I, I, being a prevention professional, is my original role. um, I I was given the opportunity to work with like the best of the best experts and researchers, in reality on the face of the earth, but certainly in our country, and to create something that was going to cost all of the consumers nothing it was going to be a free open access thing uh and to have that opportunity to be a part of building that and i was just a a tiny little you know cog and screw in that in that machine was just an overwhelming uh blessing and positive experience and i met so many people not only people of influence but people who really were committed to changing lives and uh, it was just a great experience and served for seven years on the, uh, the division three, uh, student athlete affairs uh, advisory group. And, um, yeah, just so
0: before Hiram though, you had a whole nother life. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your substance abuse background and just the job that you had and some of the, the, you know, successes that you, you really built up and changed lives even before you started coaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I was working backwards and, and it's funny because, uh, we're pioneers here at Malone, and um, uh, but we I was really a part of a pioneering movement. Um, so uh, Sally and I got married, and I was working uh, my first uh, real job as the full-time prevention education coordinator for Wayne County Alcoholism Services in Worcester. Uh, was working for a mentor of mine, servicing the, all of the public school districts in Wayne County doing substance abuse prevention work through the old system of regional councils on alcoholism which don't even exist anymore we know them as uh, ADM boards now in in multiple counties Um, and so I had that position my wife had uh, um, had just agreed to uh, and I I, I even think about how much she was going to make her first year as a uh, she was going to be working for Wayne County CSB and um, while we were on her honeymoon Uh, we were contacted my family was contacted by the superintendent of the Hudson schools and they were looking to hire a full-time substance abuse prevention coordinator administrator for their school district and they were going to split that salary with a nonprofit community group called Hudson Care Hudson Care was an outgrowth of what in the late 70s was referred to as the community intervention movement and that was an outgrowth of the mid-70s focus in industry on employee assistance programs. Mm-hmm. And so they took that model and brought it into communities and then into school districts. And Hudson was way above uh, everyone else and way ahead of the curve in doing this. And it, just the people that, that I had known as a, as a young person, as a volunteer in substance abuse prevention, had linked me with this superintendent and I ended up with this job and I was the first full-time substance abuse prevention professional in public schools in Ohio and it was really strange because everyone else that was in that business on a part-time basis in schools they were all guidance counselors and and um, and, and school psychologists or counselors from outside agencies that were on contract and here I was this young guy with a public relations degree and who I knew promotions and marketing and uh, you know a little bit of sales but certainly um, uh, just the the idea of um, idea marketing and and uh, and it it was a unique skill set I had to learn some of the clinical and technical sides of prevention but what what I did for that entire 17-year period was I sold healthy lifestyles to yep. to yep. families and communities, and um, and and it was it, it was wonderful, um, and it was it, it was something that obviously there's a need for right now. We've it's a pen that whole part of our uh, societal history goes up and down on a pendulum swing, mm-hmm. and we're in a different part of that pendulum swing right now because you know I I entered into that business in the late 1980s by the early 1990s not only Hudson, I mean multiple communities all over Ohio had just created an incredible impact on the health and wellness of young people in their communities, and we had gotten to a point to where things were really, really positive, mm-hmm. and very, very good, and well-funded. And, and then it went in the direction of, it was now uh, research-supported, and it was evidence-based, and we stopped doing things that were well-intended but we're having bad results. We got rid of those things. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) proficiency tests came to town Mm -hmm. and the entire game changed. And so here I was 17 years as a um, a school district administrator, as a community um, foundation volunteer coordinator an administrator, a varsity soccer coach, girls soccer coach, um, a community volunteer, um, an administrator in this district. And my position was eliminated after 17 years um, mm. because the priorities changed, um, mm. and, and, and that was hard yeah. for lots of different reasons. But but yeah, that was. And then obviously, you know, to kind of back that story up even a little bit more, what got me into substance abuse prevention was I I lived in a family that lived with addiction for for years. I have uh, I had two incredibly loving hardworking the most incredible parents you could ask for. My dad passed away about 5 years ago. My mom is still living with my sister and brother-in-law, but I this is this would actually be a funny podcast story too. I'm the only natural child in my family. My brother and sister who are older than me were both adopted through Catholic adoption agencies. But uh but my brother uh was, you know, the typical kid in the mid-late 70s who know started to experiment Mm -hmm. with with drinking in middle school high junior high and a little bit with with marijuana in late junior high and in high school but he had the predisposition some people believe in that Mm -hmm. Um, some people believe it's genetic Uh, it's a combination of all of those Mm -hmm. things but but he developed an addiction um, and a a medical issue related to to alcohol and and to marijuana i'm one of those people who I, I know the data, but I also know the, the, the actual uh, real-life day-to-day yeah. of when people say, well, you can't get addicted to marijuana. Yeah. And, and I could provide them with all of the data, but I could provide them with the day-to-day evidence of how and I watched how, that happen.
0: How, how, how much older? So my you've... brother
1: was seven years older okay. than right. I was, and my sister's five years older mm. than I was. Yeah. And, and, you know, you remember those. I, I remember being 11 years old. And I figured it out. Mm. I I knew that there was something different. And it was not only there was something different about my brother um, and my parents in that family dynamic. I I knew there was something different about me, too. Mm. Um, And I didn't have the conscious awareness nor the knowledge back then that I fit into a role within this dysfunctional family dynamic that I... You know, did as a as an older teenager and as a young adult, and certainly as I do now. But I knew I I behaved differently from other kids. I knew that I wasn't comfortable in groups of my peers. Um, I knew that it was really important for people to like me. I didn't know why mm-hmm. that was. I do now. But I but I remember those kind of things at eleven years old, in um, having those. Uh, those wheels turn and those bells and whistles kind of go Who off. Who were some of the mentors from your time of that, that part of your
0: life? Did you have coaches, teachers, yeah, folks yeah. that <clears throat>
1: invested in you? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of funny because I was, I was literally talking to my club soccer team about this a few weeks ago. The first coach that I remember in my life, and I, I tell this story out loud and I think about it and I think, holy cow, this would never happen today. But there was a young man who was a little league coach in my town, in Tonawanda, New York, and his name was Kevin. I don't know his last name, but Kevin drove, I I think it was uh, like a Dodge Duster or a Dodge Satellite, mag wheels, it was dark uh, dark colored like navy, Landau top. It was a souped up GT type of car. And he drove around and picked me and my buddies up we jumped in the back of the car and he took us to Little League practice. And I think that wouldn't happen today, would it? Sure, yeah. (laughs) But but Kevin was just this, he was this young guy who was, he was relational. He got us geeked up and psyched up about being on the Cardinals Little League team and was just, I don't ever remember him. I I don't remember a negative experience associated with it. It was just, just everything about it got you excited about being a Little League baseball player. And it was Mm. probably... You know, six weeks or two months, yeah. uh, you know, but it it set this definitive tone and probably adjusted or or skewed my DNA and my way of thinking for the rest of my life about yeah. what does it mean to be a coach and, yeah. and that kind of situation. And then had some great enc- encouragers in our extended family. I mean, the, the way that my mom and dad encouraged me, and, and, and I believe my sister as well, is that they, they never put limiting factors on us. It was never, you, you can't do this because of, you know, your brother or you can't do that. It was like, we trust you, you know, and, and uh, if it was riding your bike to wherever you needed to go or get, you know, doing part-time jobs and helping your, whatever it might be, it was, they were, that was the way that they encouraged. They encouraged by uh, management, by expectation and not by inspection type of sure, thing. Sure, okay. Um... But, but I was surrounded by older cousins and uncles, and, and aunts as well, but who, I think everyone knew what was going on in my family. But it, there was, because my mom and dad were such incredibly giving, selfless people, there was never a stigma attached to it. Mm-hmm. So they poured into you. I mean, my I had uh, I had a, an older cousin who was he, he's a retired attorney now, but went to the University of Notre Dame and very gregarious and outgoing. And I can remember him taking me frog hunting, at, like I was his his little brother. And I maybe only saw him six or eight times a year, but he he made sure that I knew in those moments that I was the most important person mm-hmm. in his world at that time. Uh, uncles and cousins who. Would um, would pick you up and take you to places. We moved from the north side of Buffalo, New York, to here in northeastern Ohio in Aurora when I was 13 years old. And my uncle, my dad's brother, would drive from Buffalo and pick me up to take me back to a Buffalo Sabers hockey game. No, no thought about you know that's eight hours yeah. you know to do something like no it, that was. That was not a big deal, you know, to be able to do that. And I had a youth soccer coach that did the same thing. I was uprooted from a team, and that first spring that we had lived here drove a 15-passenger Ford van all the way down here, picked me up to come back and play state cup games up in, in Buffalo to be with my friends. So, so yeah, there were a, a number of people that were just incredibly positive encouragers, and it wasn't the it wasn't that they were doing something that was intentional, to um, to reach into a life that they didn't know was you know hurting and lonely and damaged or whatever it might be. Because I didn't have that perception of myself. It was just that's what family did. That's what that's what your coaches did. That's what you and and they were just they were rich, positive people that were you know around all the time. So yeah, they, they fed that fire really early on. Mm. Yeah.
0: And, and was there a point in your life where, you know, kind of jumped to your career and your vocation, but even in your family, when you, when you discovered like, oh, wait a minute, I have the, uh, I have the ability to build into others. I'm going to be a positive influence on somebody else now.
1: When did that click for you yeah. As, a, yeah, as a leader? Um, I think it started to click for me in my first coaching role when I was a JV soccer coach at Aurora High School right after I had gradu- been, been graduated from high school um, because it was it was I, I had a playing background none of those kids had a playing background um, and and I was very much more of a peer just that opportunity to feed into their successes and build them up I must have gravitated toward that because I very much like that but I think the other one that is probably most significant was when I when I had the opportunity and was given the privilege of being the varsity girls coach at Hudson High School and it it was it, it literally was thrown into my lap. I didn't apply for the job. It was they had fired a previous coach. I walked into the main office of the high school and the AD said, Hey there's our new girls soccer coach and that's literally how it occurred that I ended up with this job. But but I took over a group of kids who the only experience that they had had in coaching, while being successful, was it, it was the you know the the whip and the horse, uh, the hammer. That was what they were accustomed to. They had no idea how to respond to positive coaching, to mm-hmm. uplifting coaching and encouragement. And it's interesting because I was I was having this conversation the other day. There was one uh, young girl uh, on the team, God rest her soul, her name is Kelly Rader, and Kelly passed away a number of years ago in tragic circumstances um, uh, due to an eating disorder. But Mm -hmm. uh, Kelly was this skinny, tiny little defender who was one of the best players that I'd ever seen. And size made no difference. She was technically gifted, tactically gifted. She was a natural leader. But when it went south... She couldn't get out. She she couldn't get above the equator. She was so condemning of herself, mm-hmm. and uh, and I and I I couldn't get through to her. It was so frustrating, yep. and and I finally, it, I I realized that I was never going to get through to her, and and I don't know if it was you know, uh, uh, God's providence or or just a, my naivete at the time that I just said I'm just going to stay the path. I'm not going to yell at Kelly Raider. I'm not going to get in her face. I'm no not need gonna... to fuel that fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't do it. And it started to gradually turn um, for her. And it was difficult. And we, And then we started to have discussions about it, not only individually, but even as a team, as to how this is a totally different style. And they couldn't... They had a really difficult time absorbing that style. And
0: yeah, I, I'm surprised it. at how many people, you know, my experience very much that way as well. My mm-hmm. early years, everybody coached in that hard drive, um, maybe uh, authoritative. Uh, negative you know it's so much easier to find something wrong with what you're doing that's what everybody did right. i can remember you know just coach after coach after coach especially in the sport of basketball for me it just seems that way i'm yeah. not sure why yeah. but you know there's so much you know you then as a as an athlete you wanted to you were tempted to mm-hmm. just go in and not make any mistakes that was the point well i you can't play basketball that way you can't play soccer that right. way right i was the same way and, and i kind of said there must be a a better way there is a different way to motivate people you motivate them by finding what they've done that's right mm-hmm. you know why not yeah. build them up and build this relationship and so bob i can test that i have definitely seen you I did, never knew you as a coach, of course, but, you know, in our years of knowing each other and the, just as colleagues and coworkers, you know, I, I can affirm in you that that's, that's the distinctive here, that everybody, there's a ton of people that, that lead from that negative, hard-driving, authoritative platform. It is much more difficult. To build a relationship, build a bridge that will bear the truth of telling people. Because you know, you and I are positive people, but we're telling people the truth as well. Sure. And I just want to affirm you in that. In that, how has that coaching experience and that life, uh, you know, uh, of positivity and sort of finding the bright spot that the, the glass is indeed half full? You know, how has that played out for you now as you're away from coaching? You know, mm. now as a leader, mm. as somebody who is. Um, you know, you're you're building relationships for a university. You're trying to lead. Uh, oftentimes, to get people, uh, maybe to give money or to the, the joke in advancement work is that you're friend raising as much as you are right. fundraising. Right. How, how does that play out for you to be a positive influence to tell a story here? It's hard. It's it, hard yeah. work.
1: Yeah. Well, you know it, what? What's interesting about that, Charlie, is is it actually has to go back to the uh, a confession and the confession is that th- that conflict actually is what chose to address to leave coaching when i mm-hmm. when i left my role as a college coach to become an athletic director the primary momentum behind that was i realized that i tried to i tried to be a transactional coach in a transformational body in a transformational personhood mm-hmm. to meet the needs of what other people expected. For the longest time, I pointed the finger at everybody else saying, you asked me to do this. I knew and I told you that that's not me, but you asked me to do that so I tried to do that and it's your fault. But the reality is, it was my choice. Hmm. I chose to be disloyal to who I really was and what I had seen be successful blows my mind now that I look back and think that as a high school coach we never talked about winning ever and we won like crazy and well and and many of our listeners may not know but
0: it, all the way to the point of a state championship yeah, at yeah. the high school level yeah you know and, and multiple playoff runs mm-hmm. and a lot of success that to the to the outward, like you say, transactional mindset, it didn't make sense. Right. You know, Bob Dean was this happy-go-lucky, positive, you know, encouraging person. How could he win? You know, and so I I, I can relate with yeah. that because then what happened was you found yourself in a context where that transaction of you know win or get fired,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you tried to do it in an authoritative, you know, uh, transactional way, and you're a transformational guy. Yeah. So yeah. to try to uh, sort of fit yourself into that mode. And then you walked away. And right. you said, uh, in essence, I know this story, but I'll tell it for the visitors, the listeners, you, you actually moved to a place of authority to mm-hmm. say, I'm gonna make a difference, yep. you know? And so talk to me about your time at Crestwood yep. and hiring and, and managing mm-hmm. coaches from a positive standpoint. Yep. When they often came to you saying, well, this, isn't, this doesn't make sense. Why right. would I do? You know, why would I be nice? Why would I tell them that they're doing well? Why would I reward them? You know why would I try to look to the bright side? How did yeah. that work for you?
1: Yeah, and I, it, I, I don't know what athletic administrator I heard this from at some point during my career who said that I, I'm never going to I'm never going to fire you or think about taking the job away because of wins and losses. I'm going to defend you until you do something that's indefensible, and that was how I approached our coaching staff. Veteran, new, young, it was very much with that motto, and that was, I'm going to defend you until you do something that's indefensible. And, and we're going to approach things from the standpoint of, it's all about the developmental experience. Yes, And how is this supporting the, the mission and the academic role that the institution represents? Nothing is ever going to get in the way of that. We're never going to sacrifice that for athletics. At the same time, we had the leadership and the commitment from really school board on down in the community to know that athletics had a vital role, as did music, as did drama, as did Model UN and anything else that went along with supporting that academic mission and getting our kids to that successful place and you know yeah. and i
0: think that in that context so we're talking about amateur sports right mm-hmm. we're
1: talking about high school level
0: and even at the college level you know we're talking about amateur sports we're not talking about professional sports here and i think the two get too great you know that oh yeah uh, it's way too mixed and so you that's the cliche you know youth coach who's trying to to run a, a professional sports organization right. And that's not what it's about. Right. It really just isn't about that at all. And so, you know, I guess what we're getting to is is that this positive outlook and a transformational, experiential, um, you know, focus is really what amateur sports is all about, mm-hmm. right? And yep. and so um, I want to dig into that a little bit, but I, I guess I guess tell me right now where you see... Uh, the greatest hope deficits in our society. So that I'm I'm switching gears on you yeah. a little bit, but from your perspective, where is this needed the most? Where is this mindset that we've been talking about and this action of being positive? Where Where is
1: that needed the most? It's the It's probably the easiest question to answer. And apologize if it sounds politicized, uh, but it's not about aisles and 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 which box you tick um uh, on whatever side of your the political landscape is that we we have abandoned our public schools, we have abandoned mm-hmm. the the primary source of the foundation of building up our country from the ground up, and that is mm-hmm. public schools the and education I, system. Yeah, and, and I and I think Ohio is at the epicenter because are we now in the in the third decade of having, uh, an Ohio Supreme Court that said the way that we fund schools is unconstitutional. Um, but Charlie, I, I uh, when I when I was laid off from Hudson and I lost that position, I sat in uh, in student council meeting. I was a student council advisor, and I wasn't I wasn't tearful or demoralized when I said to the students and the staff members who were sitting in that room that we're at, we were in a crisis this is 2004 that we were in a crisis in public education and that unless that generation of kids who were graduating in the spring of 2004 or excuse me 2005 unless they would actively choose to create a revolution it was only gonna get worse and I, I'm not prophetic but it's only gotten worse mm-hmm. and I told those kids I said if you want change What you really need to do is you literally need to get on a bus and you need to park yourself, all 100 of you, 500 of you, right outside the door of your state representative and say, that's it. No more. We're not doing this anymore. You are not going to say that our health and well-being and the professionals who are so capable of giving us a creative, inspired curriculum that would hit me up every day with a new level of inspiration. We're no longer going to accept that those professionals are incapable of doing that and are not empowered to do that, but that someone who doesn't even reside in our state, doesn't have a stake in education, says that the test that they're devising for us to pass is that much more vital than the spirit of what these teachers have, and the health and well-being of the young people that they are educating, and and that's what's happened. So it became transactional,
0: Absolutely. you know, to throw out the terms that we're that we've been talking about. Is that you know that somehow it became it, about it, scores, it winning and losing about scores. Yeah. And, and you and I talked off off mic about this, but it was about trying to keep up with Japan or uh, you know Europe or whatever right. uh, people group that the United States had fallen behind in math or science and. Uh, you know, vital observations, but we seemingly have picked the wrong pathway uh, to, you know, to try to evaluate ourselves or standardize ourselves Mm -hmm. into a solution. And it's really just about relationships and it's about the people, right? It's about these teachers. And so that's a great point. And that that once we made it objectified, we we objectified it, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we tried to put a
1: absolute on it, then it, it, you, you teach into the test, yep. right? That's the cliche. And, and now it's gone from we've objectified it, but now we've monetized it in that the school districts that meet that, whatever that changing criteria is, and it seems to change every three to six months, mm-hmm. they're going to get the most money or they're going to get the least money. It's not about the health and well-being of the residents in that community and what that community looks like and and where uh, where their tax base is and what, what support networks exist and what type of community it is. It's all about those test scores. And, and to draw the parallel, where are we at in youth sports? We've now monetized youth sports, whereas it's its, its own multi-billion dollar industry. And is the goal of that industry, is it to, to raise the standard of health and well-being for the youth in our country? You and I yeah. both. Everybody who's listening, everybody knows that's not that's the case. That's a hope. That's that's a yeah. byproduct that is that is hoped, you know,
0: hoped sure. for. Sure, uh, that is an extremely excellent observation, Bob, about you know a sector of our of our society. And, but in, in just a couple quick sentences mm-hmm. here, what's the solution to that? From for you and I, and for perhaps our listeners, you know, obviously what I, what's coming to my mind is uh, you know. Uh, let's support our teachers mm-hmm. let's let's yep. love on the folks who are on the front line every day working with young people absolutely but to continue to encourage those folks but what what's what's the solution from
1: your standpoint or where can we go well I, I just I, I look at it from the standpoint and I you know and, and can take it down to that individual level of uh, my, my wife's lifelong best friend is a fourth grade teacher in the Bay Village school district and the amount of money that she has to put in out of her own pocket to to create a normalized, positive atmosphere mm. in her classroom. We have to accept things where they are, and this is where we are right now. So if if you're in a community and you want to have an impact, jump on board with your PTA, PTO, whatever it might be, and say, you know what, no matter how much it costs, every teacher is going to have access to... And boy, every every school district treasurer is going to hate what I'm about <laughs> to say, but they're going to have access to a slush funder. They're going to have access to money that they they're not taking money out of their own paycheck to to have to enhance a, the educational exactly, experience to, exactly, uh, and to make it a more transformational right. and relational positive right. uh, experience for the yep. student. You yep. know, right? and I and I and I would tell this story as well. So so Sally, my, my wife is involved with. Um, as a board member in a program in Stowe called Bulldog Bags. It, it, Bulldog Bags is about a food pantry for the entire school district. And, and we talk about these food deserts and you know this, these rich suburban communities that they're, they're a part of a food desert where kids right. are going home on the weekend. And, and so what are these? They're, they're community people. They're retired people. They're retired teachers. They're re- um, industry people, business owners who said, are you kidding me? This is a no-brainer. So we're, we're literally going to fix it. And they fix it once a week. And they create these bags that these kids go home with. And then they're not satisfied with that. That group of, of people on the ground keep coming back to a superintendent and to principals and to mayors across the board. And it's like, okay, what's next? We, we, there's There's more of us. And we've have we have got all the time in the world, and we're going to find the resources. What's next? And that's those are having uh, impacts in public education that are they're not invisible. They're very very visible, very impactful. They're they're impactful, and they're they're keeping kids in school. They're they are lowering dropout rates. They're they're immeasurable, encouraging. Making a difference. Absolutely. Yep. Making Absolutely. Make a difference. And that's what people need to do. They need to make individual choices. And it, that could be, I'm going to run for school board. Fantastic. Or it could be walking into the principal's office and literally just sitting down and saying, I, I, I don't even need 15 minutes. Where do I sign up to make an To impact? make a difference. How, yeah. how do I do that? And give me the paperwork to be background checked, whatever it might be. But I, I, I'm going to do it. I got an hour a week, I got two hours a week, I got ten hours a week. And do it through your public school. Start there. Don't you don't have to you don't have to find a, a community nonprofit. <laughs> it's right there in every community. Absolutely. Yep. What a great observation
0: and a great encouragement, Bob. Thanks. I'm going to switch gears on you again here. I want to take you to when you were 20 years old. (laughs) Okay, so tell us what you were doing, just briefly, 20 years old. But then more importantly, how would you encourage your 20-year-old self? Tell us a little bit of what you were like.
1: That's that's such a complex dynamic. So at 20 years old, um, I was uh, commuting back and forth to Kent State University as an undergraduate journalism student. Um, who'd given up a dream of you know playing college baseball and now all of a sudden I was a high school soccer coach and and I was doing regular speaking engagements paid and unpaid about substance abuse prevention and youth leadership and I was traveling all over Ohio mm-hmm. um, speaking at retreats and through the, the old network of regional councils on alcoholism and I wasn't a really healthy person not at all I was I was dealing with the, the aftermath of my brother's Suicide, um, trying to figure out what relationships were like, and I ended up marrying this girl that we met when I was seventeen and she was sixteen and and you know by the grace of God we're still together and and but man it was it was not a it was not a healthy place to be at that time because I was just so centered on self yeah um, and and what I would say to my twenty year old self is is i would be really really intentional about wrapping my arms around the shoulder of that young guy and just whispering in his ear no matter what always remember that this is not about you that nothing you are doing right now is about you under any circumstances and if that's and if you keep that as your focus you're always going to be happy you're always going to be oriented in a way that uh, that people will be attracted to you, and Bob, you'll never have to worry about people liking you. You'll never have to worry about that, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really, I get really emotional talking about that because I, it, there's not a an avenue in my life that I work in now that I don't see young people between 15 and 20 years old who are totally wrapped up in that idea of, if people don't like me, I what what is there to live for? Yep. I mean, my, my wife deals with, my wife probably does between three and five suicide assessments a week in the work that she does. I don't know how she does it. I have no idea. I worked for 20 years watching addictions, re, you know, rip families apart and individuals apart it's it, it, it all comes down to that concept of I need to get something from the outside and I was so wrapped up in that and and I probably had those encouragers around me um, and maybe people that I wish would have said that to me in that way um, but I know that I I would do that um, and I hope that I'm doing it right now um, with people um, and you know, we uh, we were talking off air before about when that all kind of kicked in, and I, I just remember, and and I I don't I still don't have any kind of discernment on or understanding of why it was that God put me in this administrative office, in the central office suite at Hudson High School, and these kids who were devout believers would walk into my office and they would dump their garbage and why they thought I was safe when I was in there as damaged goods, just as much damaged goods as they are, probably just a little bit older. And, and God's providence put me there. And people always say, you know, what's the inspiration on your faith journey? The inspiration on my faith journey, these kids who are now 35 to 40-year-old young adults with families who, they were out there saving souls by being who they were, they were living his witness right in front of me. And they'd come into my office and talk with me about that. They were my encouragers. They kept me on a glide path to, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, salvation, um, and, and true discipleship. I don't know why that happened, but I know I'm grateful. I know that I, I wouldn't be here without, without those kids. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and they are uh, just to, to underscore their importance in my life, uh, as a believer and as an encourager would be the greatest understatement. I mean, it, it's, it's not an underline. It's, it's in, in bright yellow bold. <laughs> I am <laughs> yeah. so
0: glad to hear you say that because I've experienced that too, where this is a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not just about you as the professional or the, the coach or the, the authority, to invest and engage and encourage those that are below you you know so to speak it it is a two-way street and so I, i just find that you know very gratifying to hear you say that those that you were you know charged to to minister to so to speak were the ones that were encouraging you yeah um whether they knew it or not right you know, just a couple more minutes here with sure. you. It's this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time and and just the the passionate activism that I think I, I, I hear coming from your voice. And but tell us what you're what are you involved with now? I, I mentioned Malone University, hmm. of course, but I know you've got lots of uh, other irons in the fire. But yeah. What are you
1: doing? And how could people get in touch with you if they wanted to connect with you? Yeah. Gosh, this is. I, I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but I think the first most important roles and things that I'm involved with right now are, are being a husband and a dad. Yeah. Um, uh, just being uh, supportive to a wife who is an amazing, amazing person, but an amazing professional. Um, and I, I love living vicariously through the work that she does, through through her own work, through her volunteerism, through our church. Um, I have a son who's a freshman here playing soccer, and we're uh, we're blessed to now coach together Uh, with uh, ambassadors and sports uh, ambassadors football club in the cleveland area um and uh we we love that so that's a huge it's a time consumer for me i have dipped back into that coaching realm and and i love that i that would be a really difficult thing to give up um and our our daughter is um uh, she's looking at her next stages in life after being graduated from the College of Worcester and um, and, and searching for different things as well but um, in, in addition to that I guess my my passions are number one obviously our, our church and our involvement in our church but then uh, I took the risk uh, almost two years ago now to uh, to ask on to um, a level of involvement with the Cleveland chapter of the Positive Coaching Alliance and uh, PCA is a national organization um, founded by Jim Thompson and um, that's dedicated to really changing the landscape of youth sports um, across the board by intentionally speaking into communities and coaches and athletes and parents um, and uh, so I, uh, I'm on their associates board. Uh, and, and i'm there as a representative as a former high school athletic director um, a coach of coaches um, and just uh, somebody who i think has been uh, kind of in the trenches um, and and so I, I approach it as to i'm going to stay in the trenches i'm gonna i want to get down and dirty uh, with this and um, uh, but it, it's really just something just a it kind of emerged so i'm i'm on a little bit of a new new tack with that and that is that Um, I had this interesting experience years ago when I was working in substance abuse prevention in Hudson in that um, we had a really difficult time getting two large church denomination youth groups to actually talk to each other about substance abuse prevention and get on the same page. It literally took seven years to get the two largest youth group leaders in that community to sit in the same room together with me. And once we did that, Things really changed, and they really, really took off. What I'm noticing now in this landscape of positive youth sports is that we're we have people battling for the future of kids' souls and their and their positive youth experience. And um, and and I'm trying not to be discouraged about that, but it it all comes down to uh, territorialism and. Um, and, and this is our research is better than somebody else's research and our approach is somebody else's uh, approach and I and I go back to when I was in, in Crestwood. I was exposed to all of these things. And to me, it was all right, let's build a model. And here's the model. We had three elements. We had Positive Coaching Alliance, we had inside out coaching with Joe Ehrman and, and his colleague Jody and the great things that they represented, and then we had a, a for profit called Character matters. That was run by an associate of mine, and and they all had these these pieces parts that met a need, and we brought them all together, and and we funded it, and it was easy to fund, and we and and I don't even think they knew they were competing with each other, but because mm. it didn't make any sense to make them compete. But I've I've noticed that there's this there's this territorialism in in that. So I'm kind of a, trying to attack that by reaching out and trying to build some bridges and get those those folks to really get on the same page well to
0: realize any because i think i know what you're talking
1: about in that you know the, the the metaphor i once heard is that
0: we gotta we gotta understand that the river is big enough you know we can all be in the river yeah we're, we're all headed in the same exactly. direction and uh but we want to get so exclusive with our thing right and our you know our metrics or our method and so yeah i mm-hmm. appreciate you saying yeah. that
1: but yeah so um so yeah that's that's kind of where the passions are right now and and what's driving But us. folks
0: could reach out to you mm-hmm. here of course yep. on the malone.edu uh, or malonepioneers.com yep. right. uh, websites. Yep. But Bob listen thank you so much for sharing your time with oh, us. Charlie, this this has great. been awesome to talk to you. I love your passion, brother. Thank you so much for your observations about, you know, positive outlook on life and and really what I hear from you is is the comp, the compulsion to get involved and mm-hmm. and to go make a difference. And that's great. I I just really celebrate that with you, and I really appreciate your
1: time. Thanks thanks for being on the show. This was fantastic. Thank you.
0: Hi, my name is Charlie Grimes. I'm the founder and host of the Encouragers United podcast. My intent with this project is to first and foremost encourage the encouragers those special people in this world who, because of their experiences and their personality, are relentlessly positive and enthusiastic about all areas of life. They're gifted by God to see ways to exhort and build others up. They're often action-oriented, creative, extroverted, flexible workhorses, and they find themselves in leadership positions like teaching, coaching, pastoring, and mentoring. Another goal is to explain to the rest of the world how this person thinks, why they react the way they do to stress or conflict, and how you can best relate to us. Through teaching, discussion, idea sharing, and personal interviews, I hope you will gain new insight, learn to be patient with yourself and with others, and grow more self-aware through this content. I would hope that if you see value in this effort, identify the most encouraging, positive people you know and let them know about my work. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or my website, charlesrgrimes.com. It's a great day to be alive, so go make a difference today. Next week on the Encouragers United podcast, I had the joy of visiting with John Regis, the Vice President of Marketing and Partnerships for the Johnson Controls Hall of Fame Village and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We sit high atop the press box in Tom Benson Stadium, a stadium where John played the wonderful game of football during his high school and college career. John is an exciting young professional, teaching others and leading for the most inspiring place on earth, the Pro Football Hall of Fame.